Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast. Episode 72, Unconditional Surrender. Grant Takes Donaldson. February 16th, 1862. Ulysses S. Grant had, just days before, taken one of the two key Confederate fortresses defending Middle Tennessee. Fort Henry fell on February 6, 1862. The other, Fort Donelson, lay only around ten miles away, and Grant aimed to capture it quickly as well. He immediately sent word to his superior, Henry Halleck, back in St. Louis, that he would march and capture Donelson on the 8th. That did not quite happen. While General Grant nearly always moved faster and more efficiently than anyone expected, he could not this time move faster than the river. It kept rising, and Fort Henry, intended to become the federal base, soon lay underwater. Grant's soldiers occupied themselves, moving their supplies to a new camp outside the former bastion. But so too, Grant did one thing that also rarely happened in this war. He stopped to wait for substantial reinforcements. The logic for him was sound enough. A commander in the field, if expecting reinforcement, must weigh the additional time against the value of the enlarged force. Quite often, waiting for reinforcements merely gives the opponent the time to do the same. However, as it happened, Grant received word from Henry Halleck to the effect that Halleck would scrape every last soldier he could spare and dispatch them to Grant immediately and General Grant expected to receive as many as 10,000 additional troops within a scant few days. That, at least, was temptation enough to delay even a soldier like Grant. Besides, while he might have taken Donelson very easily indeed on February 8th, the Rising River simply made that impossible. That already gave the Confederacy time to reinforce the fortress, and so the additional manpower became very useful. By rushing every available man to the defense of Fort Donelson, Confederate General Albert Sidney Johnston believed he had provided a sufficient line. Now we will explore these events from his perspective in a future episode. For our purposes, however, he had just made a serious mistake. The troops gathering were not enough to defeat Grant in open battle, although they could potentially delay him for some time. And yet Fort Donelson was not the same as Fort Henry. The river foredoomed any defense of Henry but the site of Donelson looked much different. The defense at Donelson took two forms, which worked together. First, the core of the fort looked something like a traditional bastion, similar to Henry before it slipped beneath the Tennessee River, although very irregular in shape. Yet it had been built for one specific purpose, to bombard any vessel bold enough to steam upriver and fight against it. The earthworks here could absorb or deflect most shells. The primary battery sat atop a sloping riverside bluff, well above the waterline. Another battery, however, mounted farther back, sat a hundred feet higher than the river as well, making it extremely difficult to hit from the river. These commanded a more or less straight stretch of the Cumberland River, so that the artillery could blast any attacking Union ship for some distance. However, the fort itself would not resist a real infantry attack. It was just too small for many soldiers on its own, and the design did not permit a very strong defensive line. That was the job of the outer works. These were nothing special, merely some ordinary field works. But the war would repeatedly prove that men could hold even mediocre works for a very long time, against two or even three times their numbers, 
if these works had a weakness. It lay in their length. They ran for two or three miles right around the village of Dover. Hickman Creek protected the east side of the line, but the other had to bend back nearly to the Cumberland River itself. The soldiers in the augmented garrison could man that line, certainly, but there was bound to be a weak spot somewhere. Moreover, while they could protect Dover, they could not guard the road leading to it perfectly. The garrison could quickly become dependent on supplies brought up the river, and might not be able to prevent a Union force from firing on any supply ships. Still, as a position it held natural strength enough to potentially make each Confederate the equal of two Union attackers. The Confederates, reinforcements and all, would have one horrible disadvantage compared to those Union men, however. This lay not in matters of quantity, not in the manpower or firepower, artillery shells or tons of supply. Rather, it lay in the quality of leadership available at that particular moment. When General Tillman, an uneven military engineer but neither coward nor fool in battle, fell into Union hands at Fort Henry, it also removed the overall commander of Fort Donelson's defenses from the field. In his place, several men of widely varying military talents now entered the picture. On the 8th, command of the few soldiers available would have gone to a brigadier general with the unusual name of Bushrod Johnson. However, mere hours after taking the command, Brigadier Gideon Pillow arrived with his reinforcements. He had seniority, and thereby took over from Johnson. General Grant had in fact served under Pillow all the way back in Mexico. As a young officer, Grant judged that Pillow lacked any military knowledge whatsoever, but also did not display any cowardice in the field. This analysis appears true in retrospect, and many fine soldiers emerge from such material in wartime. But Pillow could simply never overcome that huge deficit of military skill. He remained an eager, but very unprofessional, leader. In the Battle of Belmont, General Pillow nominally commanded the Confederate defense. However, as his own superior, General Polk, was also on the scene, his authority and influence on the fight remained rather limited. It may fairly be said that Pillow made no egregious errors, but neither he nor his own superior made any especial clever moves that day either. However, another officer shortly superseded Pillow as well. For Brigadier General John B. Floyd, formerly Secretary of War of the United States, arrived with even more men to take the command. Floyd had recently caused trouble enough for Jefferson Davis while trying out his hand commanding in West Virginia. There he, Robert E. Lee, and a former Virginia governor failed to cooperate in any manner known to martial science, resulting in a string of embarrassing defeats. Richmond needed Floyd out of the Virginia front, and carelessly made him into Albert Sidney Johnston's problem. Floyd, like Pillow, lacked more or less anything in the way of military knowledge. Unlike Pillow, he had lately become a wanted man in the North. Just after he skedaddled from office, a number of suspicious irregularities in the department's accounts cropped up, enough to attract the attention of hostile lawyers anyhow. A court rejected the indictment for lack of evidence, but Floyd figured it would be very unwise to fall into Union hands, much more so than for other Confederate officers. Significantly, the third officer in seniority was not Bushrod Johnson, but Simon Bolivar Buckner, until very recently the ranking general of the Kentucky militia before he went south. Now he was commanding troops in defiance of his own home state, intending to forcibly bring her into the Confederacy. Because he is a fascinating figure, 
I want, however, to take a moment to note Bushrod Johnson, the officer who got pushed so far down the chain of command. His path to becoming a Confederate general seems rather unusual even in retrospect. He came from an Ohio Quaker family, with a number of outright abolitionists among his relatives. Johnson applied to West Point, even though the Quakers often espoused pacifism. He was, however, hardly alone in this. Remember that George McClellan also came from a Quaker background. Anyway, Johnson graduated in 1840, and for a time seemed to be as good a man as any. However, during the Mexican-American War, Johnson fell under suspicion of selling off army property for personal profit. True or not, Johnson resigned in 1847 in the middle of the Mexican-American War rather than face charges over it. That said, he did fairly well for himself, teaching in Kentucky and Tennessee afterwards. If not wealthy, he seems to have become respectable enough. And importantly, he also joined the Tennessee State Militia and received an appointment as colonel. When the war broke out, he stayed in the service of Tennessee and soon received an equivalent rank in the Confederate Army's Engineering Corps. By January of 1862, he received a promotion to Brigadier General. But this meant that although General Johnson was about the most experienced man on the scene at Donaldson, he was also the most junior. He had held that new rank for about three weeks in total. That said, Bushrod Johnson will go on to perhaps the best wartime career of any of the Confederates on the field that day. Or any except one. Johnson will fight in thick of battle after battle, campaign after campaign. He will only lose his command very nearly on the last battle of the war, when the Union delivers a crushing blow to Robert E. Lee's retreating army at Sailor's Creek all the way in 1865. But there was that one Confederate on the field that day who exceeded Johnson in his Civil War career, and that was the infamous Nathan Bedford Forrest. We will detail Forrest in more detail in another episode. But for now, understand that he had no military training whatsoever. He came from a poor Tennessee family, never joined the military, and made his way in life struggling to make money by a string of business ventures. Yet he attained some amount of success, and then hit it big in slave trading. So there was no chance for us would ever side against the Confederacy. And yet, despite being a political appointee, he quickly became a legendarily dangerous cavalry raider. He will, in fact, write the first chapter of his wartime story here at Donaldson. Though only a lieutenant colonel at the moment, he will end the war a lieutenant general, commanding one of the last armies. Much of his life before, during, and after the war lay in disrepute, to say the least. Still, his worst enemies acknowledged Forrest's talent for fighting, and his ability to suddenly appear exactly where you did not want him to appear. So much for Confederate generals. Southerners or transplants alike. While General Grant prepared to move overland onto Donaldson, Admiral Foote, in charge of the Union ironclad fleet, sailed down the Tennessee River and then to the Ohio all the way to Cairo, Illinois, to resupply and repair. While there, the passionate and devout Foote evidently decided that his soldiers, not sailors for the most part, were going to get a sermon one way or the other. When the local preacher took to his bed with sickness, Foote simply got up and preached the word himself. But Foote aimed to arm the body as well as the spirit. He rotated his armored gunboats in preparation for a fight even after Donaldson, noting that several had taken annoying amounts of damage in the process of reducing Fort Henry. Casualties had been very light, 
except on the unfortunate Essex. But no boat or ship afloat could absorb a sustained bombardment without some injuries to show for it. Fragments of shells or splinters thrown up from the impact of a cannonball might cut an unfortunate man down. Most such wounds did not kill, however, and unlike the wounds of miniballs, did not generally shred a man apart. Well, not usually, anyhow. Foote also wisely dispatched one gunboat, the undamaged USS Carondelet, ahead of the main column, in order to provide support as quickly as possible. It would be needed, because Grant began his movement promptly on February 12th, with the firm intention of fully investing Fort Donelson and taking the entire force, from generals to soldiers down to the horses and mules. After skirmishing with force cavalry, the U.S. Army arrived in front of Donelson, ready for a fight. However, the soldiers themselves made a collective, foolish mistake on their march that showed one of the more unfortunate tendency of soldiers, particularly Union men, in the Civil War, a disdain for their own equipment. Truth be told, many commands, especially the Army of the Potomac, went to war laden down with entirely too many wagons and unnecessary gear. But that was not the trouble on the 12th. No, as it happened on that February day, the weather turned warm and inviting, an early taste of the springtime to expect in March or April. But the weather in many parts of the South during winter has an odd habit of changing. One day it can feel positively glorious, nearly like a perfect summer's day, and almost overnight the weather can turn frigid and damp, sometimes below freezing. So the soldiers, mostly from the Midwest and expecting that warm days like that heralded the arrival of better weather, simply began to discard blankets and overcoats rather than carry them along. This proved, in very short order, an absolutely foolish notion, for winter had not yet exhausted its stockpile of cold. So too, many Union soldiers seemingly developed an unfortunate habit of discarding useful clothing or equipment, and simply expecting the quartermaster to resupply them at the convenience of the rank and file. Quartermasters, who rapidly grew wise to this behavior, often picked over the detritus of the army and then threw these leavings back at the men in return, but they could never reclaim everything the soldiers threw away. General Grant, for his part familiar with the travails of quartermasters, never allowed his troops any slack on the matter. If they discarded their coats, they'd better be prepared to fight in the cold. And he intended to fight all right, even as the temperature plummeted and the snow began to fall over the next few days. In fact, once he arrived at Donelson, Grant perhaps discovered that the reinforced Confederate line had more soldiers than his own. In response, he ordered up all the men left at Fort Henry, effectively abandoning it. General Grant could do this because he knew that supplies would soon come down the river, plus another 10,000 reinforcements. Interestingly, Fort Donelson might have been left nearly defenseless had General Floyd got his way. On the 11th, he ordered that Buckner and his own troops move out and occupy Cumberland City with the idea of threatening the Union supply lines. The problem here lay in the fact that Cumberland City was near 15 miles away, and by few roads, so they could not effectively do much about Grant or Donaldson from there. It would have left Pillow stuck at Donaldson and completely trapped. In fact, Grant's abandonment of Fort Henry, plus the Union superiority on the river, made his supply lines unreachable. General Pillow, unsurprisingly, protested this order vigorously, venturing out to ask Floyd to change the orders on the morning of the 12th. And then it was too late, 
and Grant surrounded, more or less, the Confederate position with his own. Grant's line lay a little thin in some sectors, however. It faced the Confederates in a long, half-moon shape, oriented towards the river. On the far left, Charles F. Smith's three brigades anchored his line against the swampy ground of Heckman Creek. In the middle, young General Lew Wallace was still marching from Fort Henry and would occupy this sector. He, like Smith, more or less faced off against Buckner's line. Wallace had a smaller command, with only a few brigades, and could not cover as much ground, at least not until the reinforcements arrived. He was there mostly to keep control of the gap between Smith and Grant's final general, McClernand. McClernand had a big job on his hands, literally in that he had a very large area to cover. For the most part, it was General Pillow's men he faced off against. However, he had to extend his lines a long way to the right, that is, eastward, in order to cover the Charlotte Road and prevent the Confederate escape. As the sun rose on the 13th, Grant had stabilized his line, but he did not want to attack yet. He ordered his divisional commanders, Smith and McClernand because Wallace had not yet arrived, to withhold offensive action. Instead, Grant intended for the gunboats to try a repeat performance of Fort Henry. This time, however, the army stood guard to prevent any Confederate escape, so if the gunboats reduced the fortification and blockaded the river, Grant could easily attain a complete victory. Both Smith and McClernand engaged in probing or skirmishing against the Confederates in front of them, however. Smith needed to find out exactly how strong the Confederate position was. They occupied his ridgeline, and he could not easily see what his men faced up against. McClernand had a different problem. An irritating Confederate artillery battery spent the day merrily peppering the Union lines. McClernand gave the nod for two regiments to go forward and clear out those guns. In both cases, however, the Confederates repulsed these limited assaults. General Grant did not worry about it. Instead, he simply asked the just-arrived ironclad Carondelet to deliver some seasoning of his own. The point that day was not to win so much as to measure the firepower and range of the Confederate batteries. Admiral Foote could then follow up with a full-scale attack when he arrived. So February 13th passed relatively quietly for a major battlefield, except for the soldiers skirmishing at either end of the line. Some of these, however, suffered a truly awful fate. Wounded men, unable to get back to their own lines, mostly Union boys, moaned their way through the freezing night. However, somewhere along those lines, the firing of rifles and guns caused some small fires to break out. Some of these men simply could not get away, and burned to death in the middle of the two armies. So much for the glories of war. But regardless of how much pointless suffering and death happened, on the 14th, Admiral Foote arrived. There was a war to fight. He brought with him those 10,000 reinforcements on the transports, who fell into line under Lew Wallace. That mid-afternoon, Foote organized his attack on the main Confederate river battery. And here, unfortunately, Foote made an understandable mistake. At Fort Henry, he wreaked the most havoc by closing the distance and firing at, well, point-blank range. At Fort Donelson, this plan backfired very quickly in an ugly fashion. His fleet began bombarding the batteries at long range, but then they drove in as close as possible. But even the lower river battery lay well above the Union ships, and the tight confines of the Cumberland River 
the gunboats could barely maneuver. At 400 yards or so, the Confederates opened a counterfire and delivered an absolute storm of shot and shell. Even given the close ranges, Confederate fire that day exhibited unusual accuracy. They rammed home 60 hits on Foote's flagship alone, one of which sent shrapnel into Foote's own foot. While all the vessels survived the counterfire, they also suffered many other wounded men. In addition, each of the ships faced lengthy repairs to become fully operational again. For example, on Foote's flagship, the USS St. Louis, Confederate fire tore apart smokestacks, crucial for keeping maximum engine pressure. But they also practically obliterated the pilot house, with the unfortunate pilot still inside. The stricken ship lost all control, and wound up swept downstream or northwards. Two other ships were similarly damaged, so that the river did their retreating for them. The Carondelet, though sporting a couple of shiny new holes, managed to extricate itself intact. The Confederates cheered this victory, even though knowing it was a temporary one. They had not destroyed a single ironclad, nor had they really hurt Foote's manpower. In the carnage of the artillery exchange, 50 or so Union men had taken wounds and 11 died, a high proportion given the small crew sizes. However, Foote could replace them faster than he could even get his ships fully repaired, although he did immediately order temporary fixes. However, the river flotilla had not destroyed a single gun. The only real damage done came from a mistake by Confederate gunners, who spiked their own field piece when firing as fast as possible. In the future, the Union gunboat fleet would deal more judiciously when facing Confederate defensive lines, and devise new tactics to deal with them. At Donelson, Admiral Foote's mistake came about directly because of the easy victory at Fort Henry. And, in addition, the Carondelet had escaped any real damage on the previous day, so it appeared like the right move. Ultimately, though, every trial of the war would require new, innovative plans to overcome them. Or, as author Shelby Foote put it, Fort Henry had shown what the gunboats could do, Fort Donaldson showed what they could not do. General Grant, for his part, struck it off. He always had confidence of victory in the end. However, on the very next day, February 15th, Grant made one of his few complete errors of the war. That is, simply a mistake and not a difficult choice. He provided orders such that his division commanders, again, Smith, Wallace, and McClernand, should not attack themselves, but only maintain their positions. And then he left, at Foote's request, without naming his replacement, however temporary. Unfortunately for Grant, the Confederates were not themselves thinking about maintaining their position, but of attacking. At a council of war the evening of the 14th, General Pillow laid out a bold plan of attack that would allow the force to escape along the Charlotte Road. General Buckner hesitated, seeing that they would face a difficult time breaking the Union line. It would require a very risky thinning out of the other end, that is, Buckner's own position, to the bone. There he faced off against seven brigades. After considering it, however, General Floyd agreed to the proposed attack, and this was probably the right move. During the night, troops quietly left their camps, packed three days' ration in their packs, and then fell in line in front of McClernand's command. In the morning, they aimed to attack, drive back McClernand's three brigades, and then hold on while the army slipped away towards the southeast. Around nine in the morning, the attack went forth, with Grant nowhere on the field. 
pillow charged his full command into the fray, swinging wide around to the eastern flank of McClernand's men with five full brigades, plus Forrest on the flank. Buckner moved up to support and kept the Union from falling upon Pillow's now-exposed flank in turn. Although intended as a swift crushing blow, the Union men gave ground only slowly, and so the attack turned into a grinding, shoving match in the snow. For three hours, McClernand kept up the fight, giving up space, but only so far. Yet finally his soldiers began to ran out of ammunition, and they fell back. McClernand's pleas for support got him very little from Smith or Luke Wallace, because both of those hesitated to move without orders from Grant, and now nobody could find him. Staff rode off hither and yon trying to locate their wayward commander. Grant, in fact, had been discussing the damage to the gunboat fleet with Admiral Foote and devising the next step in the campaign. He had, in fact, already started back towards the battlefield, entirely unaware of the raging fighting going on down at the far end of the Union line. Between the trees, snowfall, and ridges, General Grant heard no more than stray artillery fire, more or less normal on the battlefield. Then a white-lipped captain, perhaps not so different than Grant himself ten years ago, rode up and informed him that McClernand had been pressed near to the breaking point. Grant spurred his horse and made for McClernand, though he stopped briefly to dispatch fresh orders for Smith and Wallace to advance in turn. Near 1 p.m., he finally arrived to see McClernand struggling to rebuild his lines. McClernand did not look terribly pleased to see Grant, and muttered, This army wants ahead. General Grant, unable to excuse his absence under the circumstances, could only lamely agree, saying, It appears so. But someone had also mentioned to Grant that the Confederates carried several issues of rations, concluding they aimed to make a very extended fight of it. Grant disagreed. He drew the correct conclusion. They aimed to immediately march away. And here, with McClernand, Grant proposed to win. Grant did more than just look abashed and think. Seeing the chaos of the tired and tattered Union regiments, fearful and wondering why they could get no aid despite facing down, well, near the entire Confederate force, he did something. Grant ordered up the ammunition trains, told the men to refill their boxes, and fall in line, and prepared a counterattack. Fill your cartridge boxes, quick, he ordered, and get it to line. The enemy is trying to escape, and he must not be allowed to do so. The effect was to entirely reinvigorate the Union men. Some were dead, and more would die before the day was done. Many more were wounded, some severely. But everyone who had the strength took up the cheer, fell in, and prepared for that attack. Though driven back, the Union line was far from broken, while Pillow's men had succeeded enough that the weariness had begun to bite them. In addition, they were now spread out, while McClernand had concentrated into a tough, compact force, ready for round two. But the swing of morale in the Union men matched the plummeting morale among the Confederates. Even as Grant organized a stern series of blows, the Confederates fell back in disarray. It happened like this. Just after completing his drive on McClernand's position, General Pillow suddenly, and more or less unaccountably, fell into complete despair. The cause remains murky to this day. He had, in fact, entirely achieved his goal, and completed the first phase of the plan without much trouble. The soldiers had hours of daylight they could march in, 
while a rear guard could hold back the Union. And a convenient fact of geography would allow that rear guard, probably forced cavalry, to hold the narrow road where it crossed Lick Creek. But Pillow completely lost his nerve. Shortly after dispatching a telegram crowing of complete victory, he was telling General Floyd that his men could not hold on and must retreat. This time, it was Buckner who argued as strenuously for the plan, knowing there was now no chance except to follow through. But Floyd, as he had done several times now, listened only to Pillow. They could try to break out tomorrow, perhaps. But there was not the slightest chance under heaven that Grant would give them a second chance. At Grant's request, Admiral Foote sent forward the Carondelet to send a few more shells. Even at long range, the additional spice would give heart to the Union cause and demoralize the Confederates. Out on the field of battle, McClernand's men swept forward and recaptured their original position and even a bit beyond, while Lew Wallace moved up and formed a new and stronger line with him. Meanwhile, Charles F. Smith might appear isolated on paper, except that as he pushed forward and easily drove off the mere 500 men in front, he captured the entire ridgeline on which the Confederate defense of Fort Donelson was based. At first light, he could roll up artillery and lob shells into the rear of the Confederate position facing McClernand, and the fort itself could do nothing about it. The center of action had shifted decisively towards Dover. Donelson now appeared almost irrelevant to the battle. As night fell, the Confederate commanders realized it was all over, more or less. General Pillow lamely argued that he had fallen back only to get the heavy equipment. But by doing so, he cost all the irreplaceable time his army had. When the last hours of winter daylight escaped, so too did the last embers of hope. The generals conferred to see if there might possibly be a way to break out, perhaps to sneak past the Union lines under cover of dark and cold. The only way they could find, however, would be to splash along Lick Creek in near freezing temperatures. That seemed impossible, or at least one Confederate doctor thought the men simply couldn't endure it. So there was little choice but to surrender. They could try to risk everything in the morning, but the failure on the 15th rendered that an increasingly absurd proposition. At the very best, they would find themselves hammered from three sides and penned in at Dover, and the Union gunboats would then destroy them. So surrender it was. But General Floyd, for his part, wanted to avoid the blame and the responsibility alike. So he seized upon the best idea he could find under the circumstances. Let Pillow take the command while he escaped. The possibility of renewed legal action weighed heavily on his mind, should he fall into the hands of the Union. But Pillow also decidedly preferred liberty. So he proposed to immediately hand over command to General Simon Bolivar Buckner. This was done with slightly farcical ceremony, and Buckner now took the reins of thousands of Confederates for more or less the sole purpose of surrendering them. Forrest, present at that meeting, spat out in fury, I did not come here for the purpose of surrendering my command. Buckner, now in charge, shrugged and allowed the ill-mannered cavalrymen and any infantry who wanted to try to attempt to sneak out along Lick Creek. If it worked, so much the better. Somewhere out in the dark before dawn, C.F. Smith appeared in front of Grant's temporary headquarters, a convenient and surprisingly cozy farmhouse, with an unusual and perhaps unexpected note. Buckner proposed to surrender 
and he wanted to talk terms. And yet, while he hoped for some generosity, Buckner had not thoroughly understood the situation. He thought that perhaps Grant would allow him and his men to walk away in exchange for the fortress, perhaps leaving their arms behind but honor intact. More important than honor, perhaps, was the point that the rank-and-file soldiers would retain their unit structure and thus could be easily retained in the Confederate service. He expected, or at least hoped at any rate, for some manner of flexibility from his old friend Ulysses S. Grant. They had fought in Mexico together, and in California, Buckner loaned Grant the funds needed just to return home. It was therefore a rather unpleasant shock when Grant responded thusly. Headquarters Army in the Field, Camp near Donaldson, February 16th. Sir, yours of this date proposing armistice and the appointment of commissioners to settle terms of capitulation is just received. No terms except unconditional and immediate surrender can be accepted. I propose to move immediately upon your works. I am, sir, very respectfully, yours, U.S. Grant, Brigadier General. Though extraordinarily unhappy at this turn of events, Buckner had very little choice in the matter now. He ungraciously acceded in the following statement in return. Sir, the distribution under forces under my command, incident to an unexpected change of commanders, and the overwhelming force under your command, compel me, notwithstanding the brilliant success of the Confederate arms yesterday, to accept the ungenerous and unchivalrous terms which you propose. And so it was done. As the sun broke over Fort Donelson and Dover that day, 12,000 Confederates stacked their arms and surrendered to the Union. 400 unfortunate men had just arrived in the gloom of night, only to have their boat commandeered by General Floyd, who used it to get only some of his own Virginia troops away. General Pillow took a very small boat and made his own way across the Cumberland, unaccompanied except by his chief of staff. Lieutenant Colonel Nathan Bedford Forrest indeed managed to get away along Lick Creek with his cavalry. Some of the infantry joined him, hopping up to pair off with the cavalry when trying to make their way through the deepest part of the water. He remained outraged at the surrender, and sneered that the entire army could have escaped through that route. The Union had extended their lines close, but under cover of night, Forrest thought they could have all gotten away. And we shall come back to that point. As far as it went, if Simon Bolivar Buckner did not receive a liberator's glory, he also did not suffer so badly out of the business. Grant demanded unconditional surrender, but he hardly proposed mass executions. In fact, the Union simply took the Confederates captive and moved them to prison camps, with the intent of exchanging them for Union prisoners down the line. For Buckner personally, Grant mollified him a little by offering for Buckner to draw upon Grant's own credit. Buckner declined but it probably smoothed over some of the emotional agony of surrender. The governor of Kentucky wanted to hang Buckner for treason, but the Lincoln administration refused. In August of 1862, mere months later, Buckner received an exchange and returned to Confederate service, with the promotion for Major General in the bargain. Now, for one thing, Jefferson Davis could hardly fail to note that Buckner fought with professionalism, in contrast to Floyd and Pillow's amateurish attempts at leadership, Besides, he needed a Kentucky man in Kentucky. And so we have hardly heard the last from Simon Bolivar Buckner. Contrastingly, General Floyd's Confederate career collapsed, a crushing conclusion coming quick from this checkmate. Jefferson Davis was fed up and completely unimpressed by the escape of a few meager regiments, 
and the cowardly behavior of the man who should have handled any surrender personally. He tried to stay active in the Virginia militia, but became ill and died in 1863, without further military adventures. General Pillow at first seemed bound for the same ignoble end, but Davis eventually restored him to some command. He would also return to the field, although not in a particularly glamorous role. Hearing of Pillow's escape, Grant joked with Buckner that he would have just let Pillow go in any case, figuring that he could hardly do the Union any harm and might well do the Confederacy some injury in the process. Well, he was probably joking. Actually, it's hard to tell. It was a pretty good assessment of Pillow's talents, after all. But at this point, the Union was hardly worrying about one general running for his life. They occupied Donaldson and Dover that morning and shared cornbread and coffee with their former enemies, many of whom took the opportunity to simply stroll away. Neither General Grant nor his soldiers saw fit to worry over much about it. Most were very likely discouraged and out of the war for good anyhow, and the front lines would soon move a hundred miles or more southward, locking much of Tennessee and her towns and farms in military manpower, where the Confederacy could not get any of them. The effect of the Battle of Fort Donaldson was to electrify the North. General Grant had won, almost overnight, the greatest victory of any side in this war. It was a battle larger than any in the history of the United States, larger than Yorktown or Cherigordo, and Grant just captured an entire Confederate army entire, save some stragglers, including all its arms and heavy equipment. He also obliterated the carefully planned defense of Tennessee by Albert Sidney Johnston, who had to desperately revise his war plans once more, as though the losses of Mill Springs and Fort Henry had not been bad enough. His forces in the field, now, might not be a match for any of the individual federal armies arranged against him. Worse yet, though the Union ironclads were now known not to be invincible, they still had free run over both of the key rivers in this theater. Just about the only saving grace for the Confederates was that Forrest's desperately needed cavalry reported in soon enough. They would be needed to act as a rear guard for the retreat from Nashville, because Johnston now knew he could not possibly hold the city. His only chance, his only choice now, was to unite his force with General Polk and find some way to contest Tennessee. Perhaps, once the Union advanced a little farther, they might leave themselves open for a counterattack. Perhaps he could keep them guessing, and hit Grant back when he least expected it. That, at any rate, was the fruit of Fort Donelson. Yet before we close today, let us take a moment to examine the possibilities to see if it would have been practical for the Confederate force to escape. Now, while many capable historians, far more learned than I, criticized Buckner for not trying to retreat through the route that Forrest took, I disagree. Again, this is my personal view and not necessarily the one adopted by most scholars. The problems here lay in several factors. First, the nights in winter are long, but not that long. Second, it was in fact winter. Third, the escape only worked because there were so few men involved. And fourth, the army's baggage simply could not take that route, and it would have disintegrated the army about as badly as surrender. What Forrest did was sneak up along Cumberland River and then go around through the marshy lowlands of Lick Creek, more or less behind the Union line. The problem here is that the armies were now in close contact and command half broken down. 
Yes, Buckner's force had successfully disengaged from C.F. Smith's front the night before, but now the Union was watching very closely in preparation for an attack the next day. By the time Floyd and Pillow made their decision, it was probably too late to organize an escape by more than a fraction of the soldiers. Too few could be organized in the dark, and too few could have disengaged. Second, it was a tired army in the frigid and damp. And that army, or even just a brigade, would likely have gotten bogged down trying to march through Lick Creek. The men would at times have been wading through hip-deep water, and could barely have carried their rifles, let alone any supplies. Even if they got away, the army would be half-frostbitten, running on about two nights without rest, and in desperate need of some time to recover. And Grant was rather unlikely to allow them any respite. At best, this was Mill Springs, but without any convenient rivers to shield the retreat. And as mentioned, the army could not have retained any of its heavier baggage. Even provided if the soldiers kept their rifles, a very generous assumption, they would have had no ammunition, or food, and would have had to forge desperately for more. Buckner may have felt rather pessimistic after the way Floyd and Pillow handled things, but he was not really wrong under these circumstances. Even if he did not choose surrender, his only real option would have been to do a desperate last stand and buy as much time as possible. Perhaps he could have held on for a few more days, although at a terrible cost. That, at any rate, is my view on the sorry end of the Battle of Fort Donelson. Now before we close, I do want to alert you that next week there may or may not be an episode. I'll have to make do with an awkward situation, and may or may not have time to assemble all of the materials for the episode. That said, I do have some plans to essentially explain these events as they occurred from Albert Sidney Johnston's perspective. So hopefully we will see that next week at the usual time. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us again.